Hello and welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. How are you getting on? Have you been having a good week? Um, I'm doing pretty good at the last stages of, of book editing. Um, and the finish line is in sight, which is fantastic. The finish line is definitely in sight. That is a good feeling. As soon as that book is done, I am going to play the Xbox in my underpants. That is something that I sorely miss. I haven't really been... I've been able to do a little bit of video gaming. Small bit. Uh, maybe like a half an hour a couple of times a week. But I miss having the free time to be able to play Xbox in my underpants for a couple of hours and to feel guilty about it. I've been so busy, I want that. I want to... I want want to essentially waste time and then feel guilty about wasting time as an act of leisure. That is what my organism needs. Those are my needs at the moment. And I think in about a week's time, yes, this will be possible. Fabulous feedback for last week's podcast. Um, I really fucking enjoyed it because it was was bonkers. It was... uh, The only thing planned about that podcast was the fucking... Michael Fassbender's piece of prose at the start. But it really... Do you know what? I felt great after doing last week's podcast. I felt really good because... I engaged a lot of... um, creative thinking in order to solve a problem and I felt invigorated after that Um, you know a battery exploded and I just felt like turning it into a song it's just it's 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 what hit me it's what what came at me in the moment and rather than saying that don't be ridiculous that's stupid I went with it and was quite happy with the result and I needed that I think to do you know why I needed it? I'll tell you why because there's two types of creativity there's the fun silly creativity and then there's the more serious disciplined creativity and right now because I'm in book editing territory and because I've just finished we'll, we'll say doing voiceovers and helping with the edit on the BBC series, I was engaging serious uh, analytical analytical creativity, which is, I don't know, how do you describe it? I'm still using my creative brain, I'm still solving problems creatively, having to come up with ideas, but it's, it's, it's less fun, it's, it's very focused, it has a purpose, it's refining something that's already created and making it better. And that can be quite draining. It's the professional side of creativity. But then there's the other side of creativity, which is much more powerful. And that's the fun, playful creativity. That's where... It's where ideas... It's where good ideas come from. And... A key to engaging that type of creativity is... When you you sit down to create anything, there could be a there's a, a little voice in your brain that says don't be ridiculous don't be silly so when you're entertaining possible creative solutions in your head your internal critic will come in and say 
uh, that's silly, that's stupid, that'll never work. In order to engage fun creativity, you have to not listen to that voice at all. And you explore and entertain uh, whatever notion comes into your head in a really fun, playful way. Because you don't care if it's going to be good or bad, you're just trying to have the crack. And last week's episode for me was definitely that. I definitely got that feeling. And I just felt, I felt good for the next few days afterwards. I, I felt um, de-stressed and happy because it is important for all of us to, for your own mental health. Like, creativity isn't just for people who are fucking professional artists. Cre- creativity, everyone has creativity in different ways. And it should be a part of all of our lives, of our, our daily lives. As a way to find personal meaning. Do you get me? Um, and fun creativity in particular. It's it's going back to Carl Jung. That I mentioned in the earlier po- uh, podcast. It's exploring your. What's known as your free child. Or wait no. Is that transaction analysis? No. Transaction analysis and Carl Jung. Both have uh, the free child concept. Which is. The part of ourselves as adults. That engages the, the curiosity and playfulness and humour and creativity and not giving a shit that we we all had as kids that society kind of beats out of you a little bit Um. so yeah last week that's what that podcast did for me so I'm very, I'm very happy with that and thank you for the lovely feedback good crack there at the weekend too I went to I had a live podcast at a festival called All Together Now in Waterford. And I I thought, here's the mad thing. Uh, actually, now that I think of it, and I've just realised it. So, at this live podcast, All Together Now, shit went very wrong. Okay? Uh, when you're working in entertainment, uh, shit can go very wrong very quickly. And no, like a number of things can go very wrong very quickly. And for this, it did. So it was an early gig uh, at this festival in Waterford. And it was like 12 o'clock in the day. It was Blind Boys Brunch. That's what it was billed as. So I I was supposed to be doing a live podcast as brunch or something. And I had guests lined up. I was going to interview the Whalers, Bob Marley's band, you know, the Whalers, because they're gigging at the festival. But whatever happened... You know, festivals, everyone's very busy. Lines were crossed. And nobody said to the whalers what time the actual podcast was on. So, I'm travelling up to the gig. It's like nine in the morning. And then I find out the whalers aren't going to be present. So, it's like, shit, okay, I've got a, I've got a live podcast in two hours. And I don't have any guests. Now, when you get to a festival at 12 o'clock in the day, on a Sunday... It's tough to get fucking guests. So I had all the people at the festival going, listen, just ring around. Find me comedians, musicians, artists who will be interviewed by me at 12 o'clock in the day on a Sunday. And nobody had their phone on because it's a fucking festival. And they all went and had a load of pints the night before. So I had no fucking guest. So then I thought, I said to myself, fuck it. It's an hour. 
I'll read some of my book and I'll go out and it'll just be me on my own and maybe I might bring a few audience members up on stage or something. We'll have crack. I'll, I'll do the hour on my own and I bet it'll be crack and we'll work it out. Then I find out, I thought I was playing in a little tent, you know, because usually when I do a podcast at festivals, I'm playing in a tent that holds maybe 150, 200 people, small enough audience. So with that in mind, I was going, absolutely, I can do an hour on my own, no hassle. Then I find out I'm gigging on this fucking bandstand. And so I get up, ready to do the gig. I'm not joking about maybe two and a half thousand people showed up. Like the festival had 20,000 people. Two and a half thousand people sitting down on the grass. And there was a lovely break in the weather and the sun had come through. And a lot of people were just like, yeah, I want to see a bit of Blind Boys podcast at 12 o'clock on a Sunday to relax. Because I've been pissed all the time and I had a hangover so I had fucking two and a half thousand people there and I'm like shit what am I going to do so just before I'm ready to go out on stage I spot a man called Ian Wilson and Ian he was working at the festival he was backstage Ian is a legend he is he was the producer for Dave Fanning's show on 2FM for years and he was like the main person in Irish radio who would have been booking bands and musicians since 1979. So, literally 10 minutes before stage, I said to Ian Wilson, please Ian, will you just come on and be my guest? I'll ask you whatever questions, because I knew as well, he's good crack, he's very smart, uh, myself and himself, he's been really good to myself and the bandits over the years. I knew we'd have a buzz, and I knew he's the type of person who, he'd be able to take the piss out of himself if I was slagging him and stuff. So he said, fuck it, yeah. So I dragged Ian up on stage and it turned out to be a really, really good uh, experience. And I don't think that was a crisis situation. That That's, you know, the, one of those things in the job where it's like, oh, fuck, the shit that's go- that can go wrong is going wrong. And in those high-stress situations, you are faced with the with, with a choice of will I panic will I give up or will I do everything in my power to find a solution and I didn't panic for one bit um I didn't give up give up would have meant saying well my guests aren't here so I'm not going to do the podcast you're going to have to cancel it I wouldn't fucking do that because then that leaves the audience disappointed I'd never do that so instead, I was able to respond to the situation kind of creatively in the moment and to be okay with that and to go, fuck it, it'll be grand. There, Ian, he's good crack. Do you get me? I, I think the only reason that I was in the mental headspace to be able to respond to that crisis in a calm fashion is because last week's podcast had a degree of emotional catharsis for me whereby because I engaged my free child creativity it completely distressed me and it was like recharging my batteries so as a result then I could directly link that to a challenge that I was faced with where I responded rationally calmly and creatively in the moment what I'm getting at what I'm getting at is 
the importance of creativity in all of our daily lives as a way to find personal meaning um, and to have emotional catharsis. To Catharsis means, cathar is like, I think it's a fucking medical word for spit, is it? Catharsis means getting it out of yourself, whatever's bothering you. It's like massaging your emotions. Creativity is a good way to do it. Laughter, fun. These are great tools that we have uh, to get to a base level of, of good, healthy emotions. And don't be saying to yourself, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not an artist. Don't mind that bullshit. Everyone has creativity in them. Everybody. And you know why? Because think back to when you were a little child before the age of five. Did you play with crayons? Did you play with Lego? Yes, you did. Of course you did. All children play. All children are creative. Just what happens is we get a little bit older and society decides you're good at creativity and you're not good at creativity. And people tend to stay away from it then if they believe they don't have a talent, we'll say. Fuck that. Um, Everyone can be creative and it is not just the sole property of professional fucking artists. Get yourself an adult colouring book. Get yourself some Lego. Do you know what I mean? Fucking start baking cakes. Anything that requires you to solve problems but using a really fun, enjoyable part of your brain. That's creativity, really. Okay, so I, I've got a I've got a treat this week. Um I've got a cracker of a fucking live podcast with an amazing individual called Dr. Pat Bracken, who is, he's a psychiatrist and he's a doctor of philosophy. Um, and he is, he was the head of the West Cork Mental Health Board, I hope I have that correct, but He's a practicing psychiatrist who has travelled the world and what makes Pat unique is that he's an incredibly outspoken psychiatrist uh, regarding the actual field of psychiatry itself and he's incredibly outspoken and critical about the role that pharmaceutical companies have in shaping what psychiatry is. Um... It's a topic that I've wanted to speak about a lot on this podcast, but I don't because I'm too out of my depth when it comes to it. And as well, I'm conscious that, you know, I have a lot of listeners that listen for mental health reasons. I know loads of ye are taking antidepressants, taking uh, anti-anxiety medication, taking antipsychotic medication, whatever you're prescribed. And... I want to be cautious that I'm not pill shaming. Do you know what I mean? There, there is uh, incredibly reasonable, reasonable, evidence-based, rational critique to be made of the heavy use of medications for mental health, and the reason this critique exists is because it it is very much driven by capitalism, and it's driven by pharmaceutical companies. It's very cheap 
if if we'll say with a national health system it's incredibly cheap for a national health system to favor medication over something like counseling which is more expensive so i'm not like i said i'm not pill shaming i'm not giving out about medication or drugs not none of that that's far beyond my depth um every single person is different every person has different needs and medication plays a a role in that okay but what i am cautious of is just like i said the role of pharmaceutical companies in influencing and pushing medication where maybe for some people medication isn't the best solution for them do you get me so pat bracken who i'm going to talk to shortly in a few minutes Pat is one of the most the leading psychiatrists in the country. He's an expert. So I have an expert in the field giving his views, his professional learned views on this rather than me talking out of my hoop, if you get me. Is there anything else I have to fucking mention? Yes. I have, and I can announce this now, I have an Australian tour coming up, lads. Where the fuck? Hold on now. I'm going through my phone. I'm trying to find it. Right, yeah, so I have them. So yes, I can announce I am going to be doing some live podcasts in Australia. I can't fucking wait. Haven't been in Australia in a few years. Um, These were these are going to sell out very quickly, lads, because, like I said, my Canadian fucking... My Canadian podcast sold out in under two hours. And I have a lot of listeners in Australia. I think it's... Jeez, there's nearly 200, 200,000, 250,000 of my listeners are in Australia. So these will sell out quickly. I believe the, the tickets for these go on sale on either the 13th or 14th of August. You'll get them at troubadourmusic.com. So here's my Australian dates. 2nd of February, I'm in Perth. 4th of February, Brisbane. 6th of February, Sydney. 8th of February, Melbourne I cannot wait I am looking forward to that that is going to be tremendous crack Um, is that it yeah that's it so there you go lads uh, they're in February and those dates will go on sale on 13th or 14th of August okay Um, before I get into the live podcast I will do the ocarina pause, but I don't want to do an ocarina pause this week because I was given a class fucking musical instrument and it's called a a Gaia drum and it's a they're made up in Dublin. It was given to me, so it's not this isn't an advert. It was it was given to me like as a gift. I'm just saying what it is. But like so I was given this drum. They're made up in Dublin out of repurposed steel. I think what it is from looking at it. It's the bottom of a like a calor gas canister that has been turned into this steel drum. So instead of the ocarina pause this week, we're going to have the Gaia drum pause. Because it sounds very interesting and I only started playing with it today, but I, I can't wait to arse around with it more because it has lovely strange tones. It's, it's a drum actually that's uh, specifically used for meditation, I believe. 
for when people and used in meditation and used in music therapy but it's in the key of D so you could also use it as a, as a an instrument if you wanted so here we go here's the Gaia drum pause and I, I'll move it close now because I have it on, on a chair Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. is that so that was the Gaia drum pause yeah so I turned off the piano in the background for a little bit there because they were in different keys and it would have sounded quite disgusting so we're just going to wait for the the piano should come back on now where is where is it there we go um yeah so also this podcast isn't sponsored so you can support this podcast by visiting the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Do you like the podcast? Is it helping you out? If you met me in real life, would you buy me a coffee or a pint? Well, you can do that by visiting the Patreon page. You can become a patron of the podcast. This practice, it fucking, it changes my life. I say it every week. Look, I've got a regular income now as an artist, which is absurd. I, I know how much uh, money is in my bank account and how much I earn I can plan it's like having a real job so thank you so much to all of my patrons in my many years of operating as a professional creative I've never had this uh, a regular fucking income and I do now so thank you so much Um. also what you can do is you know subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on Spotify follow the podcast if you're listening to it on the podcast app on your iPhone, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, leave reviews of the podcast. Um, What else? Word of mouth. Do you know the reason I'm able to go over and do gigs in Australia is because mainly I think it's, it's, it's that lovely paddy factor, that emigrating paddy factor. A, a big thing with this podcast because I, I would hear from 
Australian listeners of this podcast, you know, Australian people. And a general theme is, like, obviously, around the time of the recession, a lot of Irish people emigrated to, like, Australia, Canada, whatever. And a common story that comes back to me is an Irish person was listening to this podcast and then they played it in their office, we'll say, for a bunch of Australians and that's how I got new fans. So it's like Irish people were carrying this podcast around and then showing their mates who weren't Irish who, like, wouldn't know who the fuck I am or know who the rubber bandits are. And now I just have these listeners who are Australian. So word of mouth. Um, you know, if you can't afford the Patreon, if you're not someone who, if you can't be arsed fucking writing comments on, on, the, on an app, then just tell a friend about the podcast. Just someone is interested in podcasts, go, do you know what? Listen to Blind Boy. That's how you can give me a helping hand. All right. I'm going to move on to the the live part of this episode. This is an interview with Pat Bracken. An incredibly interesting, knowledgeable, compassionate uh, person. Just a, a pleasure to fucking listen to. Um, I hope you enjoy this one. If you're into mental health, here's a fucking expert talking. I'll see you next week. Um, one last thing, actually. Um, with this podcast, there's elements in it where I'm asking, I, I ask incredibly simple questions, and also there's points where I explain incredibly simple things about psychology or psychiatry, right? This is not me trying to explain it to Pat Bracken, the expert. This is me as the role of interviewer, kind of assuming that the people listening may not know so i go quite heavily simple and stuff just in case you're going why is blind by trying to explain psychiatry to a psychiatrist what a prick it's not i'm uh taking on the role of interviewer also there is a factual inaccuracy in this i say that the painter amedio medigliani died by suicide he didn't his girlfriend died by suicide uh two days after his death of tuberculosis so just to point that out there you go enjoy uh, this was recorded recently actually in Skibbereen in Cork if you're wondering at Skibbereen Arts Festival what, what is the difference between a psychiatrist and a counsellor oh, that's very straightforward I can answer that one. Is it one of those ones where it's, it's the answer, answer is so simple, it's not even on Google? Yeah, yeah. A psychiatrist is a, a doctor, basically. So to be a psychiatrist, you have to go through a medical training. You have to qualify as a doctor. You have to study all the things that other doctors study, the body, the nervous system. And you have to study pharmacology, and you have to be able to prescribe. So you do all of those things. And then after you train as a doctor, you go away and you do some specialist training in mental health. So you study psychology and you study a bit of therapy and you study anything that's relevant really to the field. And you do another five or six years doing that. And then you qualify as a psychiatrist, whereas a counsellor or a psychotherapist doesn't have a medical training. And they study basically theories of the mind 
and ways of helping people by talking to them. So that's... But how much of... Like, another thing, and I could be wrong, but I seem to think that people who have mental illness go to psychiatrists, and then people who have mental health issues, that's more psychotherapy. Like, is that wildly incorrect? Uh, it's more complicated than that. I mean, I've been doing mental health work for 30 years, over 30 years. And the thing that kind of, I'd say after that, the most essential thing about mental health and mental illness is that it's messy. The whole territory is messy. We don't even agree on what to call the things that we encounter. There's no agreement between psychiatrists, between psychologists and others. Um, there are some people who are anti-psychiatry, so they say all of this psychiatry stuff is bullshit. There was a very famous psychiatrist in New York, Thomas Sass, who said that mental illness was a myth, that there's no such thing as mental illness. And he has a very wide following. He's dead now, but he's, you know, a lot of people would follow him and, and, and that. So the whole territory... So, something like that even, Pat, right? That's a, that's a statement like that. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Because what, what he's not saying there is that, oh, people are making it up. What, what do you mean? What, what did he mean when he says mental illness isn't real? What, what, what does he think is the, being fabricated? What he's saying is that you use the term illness when it comes to something wrong with your body. Mm -hmm. And you can put that in an x-ray machine or you can take blood and you can say, that's what's wrong with this person. What Saz said is that you can't do anything like that with the mind. That the mind isn't like a part of the body. And that while people have serious problems with their mental world and struggle with that and suffer because of it, it's not an illness-type suffering, is what he said. And so the idea that those kind of problems should become the remit of doctors, for him, was a big mistake. Mm -hmm. And what he used the term a myth of mental illness was to say that this whole discourse saying that mental health problems were just illness, like bodily illness, he argued that that was a big mistake and a wrong move and that we should keep mental health problems outside of the remit of medicine altogether. Now, I have sympathy with that, but I think he went too far mm -hmm. with it because, to my mind, whatever else we are, the mind isn't up here in a box mm -hmm. and the body down here in a box. Mm -hmm. I think we're a lot more complicated than mm -hmm. that. We don't exist in that kind of dualistic way. We're much more integrated so if you drink too much beer, mm -hmm. you'll feel shitty the following yeah. day. And as I always uh, say, like when you when you, like if you have a hangover, and I always get mails from people going, "Geez, my mental health is very bad." Do you know what? The next day after a lot of pints, and the simple answer is, "Yeah, yeah, you, you took a lot of depressants last night, so now you're depressed." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to to me, it's 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 uh, it's complicated and it's uh, not straightforward. So your question, is there mental illness and mental health, 
and can you make some kind of nice demarcation between the two so that the people with mental illness go to psychiatrists and mental health yeah. problems? I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Do, do you think that, that labels are helpful? Like, you, you're known as someone who is critical of, of psychiatry. What, what would you think would say of... So there's a thing, if you don't know it, it's called the, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, which is... It's like a checklist for different mental illnesses. So if someone has depression, there's a checklist of, well, this, 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 and this. And it's one thing that I'm... Here's, I'm always a little bit sceptical of it. I, I feel it's kind of simple, and the thing... Being gay was in this manual up until about 1976. It was in the manual as, as, a, as a, a mental illness, you know what I mean? So something that has that flaw, I'm going, holy fuck, do you know what I mean? How do you feel about the DSM? The DSM is, is a big problem, I think, um, because <clears throat> basically the history of the DSM, uh, the, the DSM is the Diagnostical, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So it's an American system. Mm -hmm. It's something that the American Psychiatric Association dreamed up. And the history of it is that there was a DSM-1 and a DSM-2, but mm -hmm. the big change, the one that we all now talk about as DSM, came in 1980 with yeah. the DSM-3, mm -hmm. okay? And a lot of, that was a revolution, because up to, the, up to that time, up to about 1980, American psychiatry was largely under the influence of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. They were heavily influenced by Sigmund Freud. And to be a psychiatrist at that time in America, you basically had to be a psychoanalyst. Certainly if you wanted to progress within the field of psychiatry, you had to go away and train as a psychoanalyst. So if you wanted to be a professor, say, of psychiatry, all the professors were psychoanalytically trained. Mm -hmm. And they would see patients, a, you know, a small number of patients, and see them for sessions after sessions after sessions. And psychoanalysis is, when, when most people think of psychiatry in popular culture, you imagine someone lying back on a lounge as a person writes their thoughts. And that exists because that's the old psychoanalytic model. T tell me your dreams, I'm trying to get at your unconscious mind. And... Like, a lot of that is very irrelevant now to how modern therapy happens, isn't it? Well, psychoanalysts still exist, and yeah. psychoanalysis um, you know, is still popular and, and, and that, but it, it's not as dominant a way of thinking about mental yeah. health issues as it was in America, certainly, up to 1980. And basically what happened then was that a bunch of psychiatrists said, this is bullshit, we're seeing patients for hours and hours, they're not getting better were a bit of a laughing stock. There were studies done that compared diagnoses between British psychiatrists and American psychiatrists, and they were all completely haywire. So what American psychiatrists were calling schizophrenia, mm -hmm. the British psychiatrists were calling bipolar disorder. And, and we were calling it Catholicism. It, <laughs> it, it, was, um, it was a mess, and it made psychiatry look a bit stupid. So some people thought the answer to our problems is to make psychiatry even more medical. Mm -hmm. So let's get a diagnostic system that's really, so really you, sharp. It, it comes from a place of insecurity. Yes, absolutely comes from a place so of insecurity. So they think we're uh, silly hippies playing around with this stuff. Let's make this look like uh, something medical and then maybe we'll be taken seriously. Exactly. 
That's exactly what happened. Yeah. It, was as, it was literally that blind boy. That it was that sense of, we look stupid. Mm -hmm. We can't make diagnoses the way you know, neurologists do or endocrinologists do. So, so, so it's like, 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 a, like a politician in a bad suit. Do you know what I mean? Like a country politician, all of a sudden they want to be taken seriously up in the doll, so they get a bad soup, but they just look like a bus conductor. <laughs> that's, that's my metaphor right there for what, is, what happened with psychiatry. But the other thing that happened at the, at the same time yeah. that the DSM came in was that pharma, pharmaceutical mm -hmm. industry, started to get interested in psychiatry, in mental illness. They started to think. See, this well, where it gets slightly conspiratorial. It does, yeah, it does. And he's, he's going to have a hot take, lads. It's uh, <laughs> it's not just my hot take. Look, this is this is uh, this is just history, um, and I don't think anyone disputes this now. Uh, in fact, uh, the president of no less an organisation than the American Psychiatric Association, Shafferstein, back in 2000, talked about psychiatry becoming. Instead of having the biopsychosocial model, he said, what we've ended up with is the bio-bio-bio model. <coughs> and mm -hmm. basically, that's what's happened. And that was from within psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So in that 20 years, from 1980 to, to 2000, mm -hmm. pharma moved into our territory big time. They started to invest a lot of money. Uh, mm -hmm. They put a lot of money into the development of the DSM. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of the DSM was we'll be able to make a diagnosis of depression based on a few five symptoms, mm -hmm. bingo, you've got that. And then we have a and pill then we have a this. pill that we yeah. can put with that. And they managed to get um, uh, their pills like Prozac, mm -hmm. came out in about 1980. And they managed incredibly to get that on the front page of Newsweek magazine twice. Mm -hmm. it's, it was a remarkable marketing kind of uh, achievement. Um, so there was a new class of antidepressants came in around the same time. There was new kinds of antipsychotics, and this was a big time for psychopharmacology. Huge promises were made, and uh, basically psychiatry became completely biological, mm -hmm. and it moved very rapidly away from psychoanalysis and that mm -hmm. image you had of the going to the psychiatrist and someone lying on the couch and talking mm -hmm. about your dreams and your mother and your fantasies and whatever, that was gone. In a, in a period of five to 10 years, you went to your psychiatrist, you had a 15 minute consultation, he or she asked you about your symptoms and you went out the door with a prescription. And that, that happened. And, and he, here's the thing too, and I, I don't know, is it simplistic to say that the, like the DSM is essentially a checklist? Yes. So, like, this is the thing that, that bothers me. When, so when I was 18, 19, and I started to present with very bad anxiety, very bad depression, okay? Yeah. I didn't know what it was I had. I, I just knew I was having moments of utter terror where I thought I was going to die all the time, and it was no crack. And because I didn't have a label or an understanding for it, I started to depersonalize, which meant that I, I, like, I, I, would, I was literally scared of my own shadow, like literally, I don't, I'm not using that metaphorically. I, my anxiety would be so bad that when, if I would see my shadow on the wall, I would start to get confused that I can't tell the difference between me 
and I can't tell the difference between my shadow, and then that would make me feel very afraid. I'd also be worried about my hands. I'd fixate on my hand and I'd say, how do I know my, this is my hand? And then I'd get a panic attack. Now the issue is, is that I was so fucking anxious that I could have, if someone had asked me a, a checklist for schizophrenia or psychosis, some of the things that I'm saying yeah. sounded psychotic. They weren't, they, I did not have psychosis. What I had, they're just things that happen with anxiety and low self-esteem. Um, so that kind of scares me, like how easy it would have been to misdiagnose me with something far more serious and then for me to get thrown into a system whereby, I don't know, I end up on antipsychotic medicine and may not need it. Like, the, the, what, I, what I have pat on for, the, the, this is something I've wanted to speak about for ages, this particular topic, which is kind of critical of drugs, right? But the thing is, I'm not a fucking expert, Pat is, so I'm careful talking about it. But as well, like you know I speak about mental health on the podcast, I have a lot of followers, and they're anti-anxiety medication, they're, they're antidepressants. This is what has them alive. This is what helps them get through. So I'm, I'm very conscious of what's, be, what's called pill shaming. That's a thing that exists, where people feel that because they're being medicated, they're being shamed for this, when they're going, well, this is what's fucking working for me. So what I always tend to say is that it, it's about the individual. Every individual has different fucking needs. So there, I, I would never take a position on my podcast of uh, pills are bad um, and psychotherapy or CBT alone is brilliant. It's like, no, 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 everyone has individual needs and it's a spectrum of different things that can be used to help yourself. But one thing I will say is I know firsthand lads in Limerick who have broken up with their girlfriends and then they're sad because they broke up with their girlfriends. And then they go to the doctor because they're so sad and now the doctor's giving them antidepressants. And it's like, so you got antidepressants because you broke up with your fucking Bjor. <laughs> but like, that's scary. That's frightening. Because now they're on fucking antidepressants and coming off antidepressants isn't something you just do like that. So that's hap I'm seeing that happening to people I know and that scares the fuck out of me. So that's kind of why I want to speak to Pat. Uh, tonight. What, what do you think about some of that stuff I was saying there about, I, I mean, even GPs being very happy with what they're popping out at people? I think, I think it's, a, it's a huge issue. Um, uh, I, th I think you're now talking about 10, 20% of the population in Western countries being on antidepressants uh, and other drugs associated uh, with, with psychiatry. Um, and I agree with you that, that this is not about what you call pill shaming and I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a doctor, I prescribe these things so I, I'm you know, part of that system. But what I think we need to be, we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we use medication. Um, and we have to be what I would call, the, the, the term I use is critical thinking. We have to introduce more critical thinking into our systems of care. And what I mean by that is thinking about where do these practices come from? Where do the ideas come from? Where do these, what is the history of how this came about? And that's what we were doing there with analyzing the background to the DSM 
And that didn't come through scientific breakthrough. No. There was no scientific breakthrough in that. That was a professional kind of guild decision on mm -hmm. behalf of my profession to say, we look like a bunch of idiots here. Mm -hmm. We've got to do something. Like you said, putting on the politician, putting on the suit. Yeah. We have to do something to make us look better. Mm -hmm. And that's where the DSM came from. It didn't come from science. And what's actually happening now in America, in American psychiatry, is a whole bunch of American researchers and psychiatrists are saying the DSM is a load of bullshit. It doesn't actually help us to understand what's going on with people. These diagnoses that we've operationalized, that we've made lists of, just were handed down to us by the previous generations of psychiatrists. So the, the, the concepts, the divisions within the DSM actually all come from the psychoanalysts mm -hmm. of a previous generation. And terms like schizophrenia yeah. were dreamed up by psychiatrists back in the 1920s and mm -hmm. 30s. So they don't actually correspond in any way. There's never been uh, um, uh, what we call a biomarker, like a blood mm -hmm. test or an x-ray or anything that gives any solidity to the diagnoses used in psychiatry. Even today, there isn't a single biomarker that's used. There's no brain scan that you use it's to diagnose. All me measures of behavior. Only. It's all it's all based on what we call and a clinical basis. One, one thing you said there a while back, which I found interesting, you were saying that when the American psychoanalysts were showing their results and they were contrasting this with the British, you were getting different results with a British person than an American. Now, is that because cultural context? No, I think what they, what they actually showed was that uh, the psychiatrists were just doing it differently. The, the, mm -hmm. the training of the psychiatrists, the way they were thinking was different. So the whole thing was to get the psychiatrist thinking right mm -hmm. and to, to introduce a system that if you saw someone with this problem in New York and you saw the same problem in London, you'd yeah. be making the same diagnosis. And in some ways, those systems have brought some, what we call, reliability. In other words, yeah. there's some kind of correspondence has come. But that still doesn't say anything about what, those, what they're agreeing about. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what, they're, what, what the problem is in some ways. Um, I saw, I, I know you, you do a lot of stuff, or you speak a lot about, around trauma. Um, were you doing some work in Uganda with trauma or something? Basically, my, my uh, history was that I, I uh, qualified in medicine here in, in Cork and went straight into psychiatry. I only did psychiatry. Did you I, know I, I, you... I did medicine to do psychiatry. Okay, so you knew you did, did something about psychiatry, this is what I want to do. Absolutely, yeah. How, how did that come about? I was always interested, even as a young fella, in madness and states of craziness. Um, I was fascinated with a, an art movement called Surrealism. Ah, oh, very good, yeah. And you're interested in Dadaism. Yeah, yeah, Dadaism. Dadaism and yeah. the Surrealists. And the Surrealists kind of came together in the 1930s in Paris, and their take on things was, it was kind of a reaction to the, to the madness of the First World War. Yeah. And the so-called rational bourgeois civilization that had led mm -hmm. to millions of people being slaughtered mm -hmm. on the fields of France and Belgium. And the Surrealists were disgusted with that. And there was a whole artistic movement that said, if that's what bourgeois rationality gave us, mm -hmm. let's go for irrationality. Mm -hmm. And they became fascinated with dreams 
and madness. And they were the first anti-psychiatrists, actually. Mm -hmm. They wrote letters to the uh, heads of hospitals mm -hmm. in, in Paris demanding that people with mental illness be not confined. Um, some of the books that they wrote, like that Andre Breton and others mm -hmm. wrote, were actually simulating states of madness. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, Breton himself, who founded the movement, was training to be a psychiatrist uh, at the end of the First World War. And he basically moved away from medicine and became a poet. So I was fascinated with these guys. So you, you're, and, used, and you're coming whole. at this from an, an artistic point of view, like yeah. creative yeah, artistic yeah. point of view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah. familiar with Salvador Dali, yeah? Yeah, so Dali would be the, the main surrealist that we know. And Dali's paintings, really, he, he would have been deep into psychoanalysis. So what he used to do a lot of the time was he developed a technique called lucid dreaming, whereby it's a way of... I think you can look up how to do it online, but basically it's like you wake yourself up during the middle of sleep and you write down what you can remember for your dream. And if you do it more and more and more, apparently some people can remember everything that was in a dream, but also control things that are happening within it. So a lot of Dali's paintings were symbols from the, that he could recall from the depths of his unconscious that had to do with sexuality, fucking... Like, he's got a lobster telephone, and it's basically, for some reason, he just, he dreamt about uh, filleting a lobster on a beach. So he's like, okay, let's make it into a telephone, and then the lobster genitals are near my mouth. Have that, society. So th that's what he was, it was the, the most possible irrational thing that you could go, and when you try and, a good example would be, you know Twin Peaks, David Lynch? He's the modern surrealist. He'd be the closest thing. There's a lovely thing that David Lynch said, which sums up all his work. Like, because his films are fucking nuts. And so, like, so is his TV stuff. It's very, very irrational. And he was being quizzed and quizzed and quizzed about just tell us what the fucking film means, will you? Just tell us what it means. And he said, you need to stop looking at my films in terms of them being good or bad. And instead, look at them the way you'd have a dream. If you have a dream last night that's, I don't know, you're up in Centra and all your teeth fall around the, around the ground and then a cocker spaniel walks in with an umbrella on his head, whatever. If you ha it, when that happens, you wake up and you go, Jesus, that dream was a bit weird, wasn't it? You don't look at your dream and go, it started off great, but the plot was quite ropey there by the middle, but it tied it, tied it you know what I mean? We, d we actually have a quite a lot of compassion about our dreams. We're able to accept that that dream I had last night was bonkers. I'm going to get on with my day now. So Lynch was going, that's how you need to look at my films. Don't say you saw a bad film, just say, I just had a weird film. I, I need to have some coffee now. <laughs> but that's surrealism. It's, you don't look for meaning within it because it's based upon the utter irrational depths of the human unconscious mind. So that's... He also, Dali also developed a, a technique that he literally called the paranoiac critical method. Yeah. And it was about trying to... Like in paranoia, you believe things are happening that are not happening. You know, you start to read into situations, threats and meanings that aren't actually there. And what he tried to do is to read into landscapes, even people, eyes, ears, etc. Um, 
And, and he literally called it the paranoia critical method. That's interesting. Now, just as you said that, it's after... <clears throat> remember I was saying earlier, when I first presented with anxiety, I was worried that I might have had psychosis. Yeah. I was reading about Dali doing that at the same time. Okay. And I would be looking up at clouds and I'd see a face, or I would look towards the trees and I'd see a person. Because my anxiety was so fucking high, I didn't have the confidence to be able to say... Like, I can happily look up at a cloud now and I can see a face if I want. That's just my mind being creative. Yeah. But back then, because I was so crippled with anxiety and shame and depression and everything, I was like, no, 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 I'm hallucinating. And now I can't tell if that's an actual face or not. Do you get me? I do. I do, yeah. So that's yeah. where I was at. And yeah. do you know what, though? The, the label of anxiety, it, 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 it took 50% of the pain away. For someone to tell me, What's been happening to you is called a panic attack. That was a lovely feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. To go, that's called a panic attack, and then for the psychiatrist to say to me, um, do you get this? Do you get you know, your hands trembling, yeah. all of this? And I'm going, brilliant. And he goes, yeah, that happens to lots of people. It, and what he said to me was, it just means that there's a fire alarm in your body, and the fire alarm went off, but there's no fire. Yeah. And it didn't stop yeah. the anxiety, but literally 50% of the terror and the shame and the fear of what is this and the fear of um, am I going to, I, I don't know, I don't know what color cousin as well who had schizophrenia so that it was a big worry of am I presenting with this and it wasn't, it was just bog standard anxiety. But there's so many things like that, blind boy, that, that if we can normalize and, and be able to talk, you see that, that's, that's what I get from that is that is that sense of, and I've had these discussions with very many people who are, a lot of people will come and they'll say, I'm, I'm scared, I'm going mad, that nobody else has had mm -hmm. this experience mm -hmm. and they haven't talked to anybody else about it. And what you can do just by having that conversation is that you can normalize that or mm -hmm. give an account for it, you know. And even something like hearing voices, mm -hmm. which, which is something that really freaks a lot of people mm -hmm. out because we associate it with madness, with schizophrenia and all of these things. Lots of people hear voices. Mm -hmm. hear, hearing voices, about 15% of the human population hear voices. Some cultures celebrate that, that experience. They mm -hmm. see it as someone who's been close to the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a, 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 an experience that some people will look to in some tribal cultures in Africa, it's a, it's a way to become a healer, mm -hmm. is if you have those kind of experiences. But because we don't talk about it, and we, we hide away from it, it becomes stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes something you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's not about getting a diagnosis, because a diagnosis kind of puts it into a box, and it kind of medicalizes it. So it takes it away then from other things, okay. other possibilities. But it is about being able to talk about it mm -hmm. and being able to express it and go through the messiness and the, 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 the fear and the, all of the other things that come up with those kind of experiences. But I think we've, we've touched on something important, which is the relationship between states of madness, states mm -hmm. of distress, states of dislocation and creativity yeah. and that whole world. And for me, that's what's important to get back and to really start exploring that because 
One of the downsides of the medicalization of mental health problems mm -hmm. is that for something to be a medical problem, it takes any kind of meaning out of it. It just becomes pathology. It just becomes something to get rid of, mm -hmm. something to zap with a drug or to just try and get it out of your life. But if you can come at it from a more creative perspective, mm -hmm. it's not going to take the pain away necessarily mm -hmm. or the suffering away or the struggle away, but it can actually make it more meaningful and it can open up channels where we can actually start communicating a bit easier mm -hmm. about mental health stuff. And I think that's one of the ways forward with, with the whole mental health Kind of world of mental health. Yeah, e even with myself, um, and I've often said this, like, because the, 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 my ability to be creative, to come up with ideas, to come up with ideas that are imaginative or mad, I like, I, I like the irrational. I search for the irrational in my work to try and make it into art. But the, because I have a strong imagination, when I had mental health issues, that actually, it made it really worse. Having a panic attack, but then combining that with the fact that you have a good imagination and you're comfortable living in your head, means that it can go, you know what I mean? It, my brain was going 100%. But now, when I write, and I am mentally healthy, and I am happy, I can see that I'm using the part of myself where the anxiety comes from, where the depression comes from, those elements of my personality, <clears throat> I'm now channeling in a really fucking healthy way into stories that I write, into the work that I do. And it's not scary, it's not frightening. I just go, these are facets and aspects of my personality. When I'm in a bad way, if my self-esteem is low, if I'm not looking after myself, then they can come and yeah. they're not my friends anymore. Then they turn it in on me. But when I have it in control, I go, brilliant. I have a highly irrational brain and I can turn this into comedy and creativity. Have you heard of the Icarus Project? I have not. The Icarus Project is, uh, came about, about uh, 15 years ago. A bunch of young people in the Bay Area in uh, America, in mm -hmm. San Francisco and that, people who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And they'd really struggled and had hard times. A lot of them had been hospitalized. They were on heavy meds and stuff like that. But there was a guy, Sasha de Bruel, was, was, he wrote a, an article about his own experiences and it was in one of the newspapers in San Francisco. And he said, look, I can accept the medical diagnosis, I, can, I have to take these drugs and whatever. But he said, this limits me. And he said, mm -hmm. this stuff in my life is more than that. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this article and he just tried to express it and he was an artist. And a whole bunch of people got in touch with him and said, look, we're struggling with this stuff, similar stuff uh, as well. And they started to talk about, wow, this bipolar thing that we have. Yeah, we get very depressed, we get high or whatever, but there's a creativity yes. in this. And they used the image of Icarus from Greek mythology. Lovely. You know? He flew too close to the sun. Exactly. Yeah. Icarus was the son of Daedalus who was an inventor in Greek mythology, and Daedalus was imprisoned by King Minos in the island of Crete, and he wanted to escape with his son. So he invented wings. Uh, he made these huge wings for himself and for, for his son Icarus. And he, said, he made them with wax. He got bird feathers and put them together with wax. And he said to Icarus, now we're gonna fly off the island and escape. 
But he said, be careful, he said, because if you fly too high, the wax will melt mm -hmm. and we're in trouble. So they took off and flew. And of course, Icarus being young, with the freedom that he got from the wings, of course, flew low and flew too high. And indeed, the sun melted the wax and Icarus fell mm -hmm. into the sea and drowned. And what the people in the Icarus Project talk about is dangerous gifts. Mm -hmm. They believe and they've articulated this. It's beautiful. Their, their website is, is something I always recommend people to go to. And what they talk about is that, look, this thing came into our lives. We don't know where it came from, this mm -hmm. tendency to go, to go low and to go high or whatever. But it actually, in, in some way, and if we can get together on this and support one another, this can actually be hugely positive. Mm -hmm. But we have to manage it. And we have to learn how to manage it and support one another in managing it. And that, and that to me, is a really good image of mm -hmm. creativity and mental health problems. Um, and, but it's across the board. All sorts of, of creative people uh, are, are most, you know, you think of the artists that we pay loads of money for. Yeah, like Vincent all, van Gogh and, and other people. You all know. my heroes in the all, arts, especially all, in painting, yeah, they were all yeah. uh, most likely had some type of issue. Yeah. They, I mean, we, we, when it's an artist, we, we say, oh, they were eccentric. Eccentric is, is a, I think it's a privileged term that we give to madness when, this, when the person also exhibits some type of creative output. So, like, like what was Van Gogh's thing? He had depression, but there was also whatever they were given, he had epilepsy, and whatever drugs they were given for the yeah. epilepsy at the time caused really, really intense hallucinations, and that's why he would paint that way. But who else? Uh, not Paul Gauguin. Amedio Medigliani, like he had extreme bipolar, fits of rage. Um, his art, that was quite sad actually, because his art is, is uh, he was locked into his room with a block of hash and he just had to paint and paint and paint and he eventually just threw himself out the window. So, and you know, Van Gogh, what the fuck did Van Gogh do? He shot himself in the stomach in a field. He painted the crows, didn't he, and shot himself in the stomach. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, um, so we were horsing into conversation backstage. We shouldn't have been, so we should have saved it for stage. Um, I'd love to chat about your time in Uganda because you were there for three years. Uh, what, what you were doing it sounded pretty amazing. Well, um, it wasn't actually. Um, it was about the, the worst thought out project known to man. Um, I... Uh, Basically, when I, I finished training in, in Cork and did my psychiatry in Cork hospitals back in the early 1980s, and I spoke about getting into psychiatry and, and doing medicine to get to psychiatry because I was interested in madness from mm -hmm. surrealism and all of that. Gee, the world of psychiatry in Cork in the 1980s was far from surrealism and creativity and imagination and Icarus projects and the like, it was pretty, pretty dismal. And uh, I, I was faced with a huge contradiction between uh, caring for people, which you do as a doctor, and controlling, which I suppose mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about too much, but actually a large function of psychiatry 
is controlling people. And that goes back to the origins of psychiatry in the uh, asylums, the great asylums and madhouses of Europe in the 18th and 19th century. And in many ways, it defines psychiatry as a profession. Um, and, and, and for me, as I say, as a, as a doctor at that time, that contradiction just became, you know, so I got to a point where I was going to pack it in. Mm -hmm. And I saw a job advertised for young, looking for a psychiatrist to work with victims of torture in Uganda. This was back in 1986. And the regime of uh, Idi Amin had fallen, the regime of Milton Obote had fallen, mm -hmm. and a new regime under Yoweri Museveni, who's still the president, in Uganda had just come to power and they were promising a new era of respect for human rights. And Amnesty International, who had been campaigning a lot about Uganda, mm -hmm. kind of wanted to put some money into a kind of posit positive project. So I applied for the, for the job and remarkably was, was uh, even though I'd never been to Africa, mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was recruited and uh, I met my partner, Joan Giller, who's here tonight, and that's where our work started together, really, working in this whole area of working with victims of torture, victims of rape. And our job, we were sent out there to set up a centre for people who'd been tortured. And we arrived in the middle of Kampala, and it was still a bit of a war zone. Nothing kind of worked there, and there was soldiers everywhere. It was still quite a frightening place to be, really. Uh, but Everybody had been, everywhere you went, someone had been brutalized by soldiers or had had uh, a relative killed. I remember talking to the woman who was head of the Department of Psychiatry one day after we got to know each other. We were chatting. Grace Nakasi was her name, and she told me about her brother, who was the head of air traffic control during the uh, Israeli raid on Entebbe. It's been made into, the Israelis celebrated as, you know, uh, there was films made of it or whatever, when the PLO kidnapped an Israeli plane and landed it in Entebbe, because Idi Amin, who was mm -hmm. the president at the time, was sympathetic to the PLO. Um, and uh, anyway, I cut a long story short, because this woman's brother was the head of air traffic control and allowed the plane that, that the Israelis came in and basically shot dead the PLO guys and rescued the people on the on the on the plane because he was working that day he was he disappeared and they found his body sometimes later mutilated in a in a bog outside of uh, Kampala so there was nobody she was someone who was mm -hmm. I was working with in the department so the whole of, of Uganda at that time was pretty traumatized and the idea of setting up a centre where a couple of white doctors from Europe had some ideas about mental health, we actually started to think we could do a lot of harm here, mm -hmm. actually, because we could start to undermine kind of local ways of dealing with suffering, with uh, trauma, or whatever you want to call it, with the idea that there's some expertise coming from the West from white universities or whatever mm -hmm. in psychology, and that if we start to do that in the middle of Kampala, 
um, then people will start to think, oh, what we have in our own communities, mm -hmm. in our own cultures, of ways of dealing with suffering aren't good it's, enough. Uh, it's and we start to undermine The danger that. of uh, being colonial without, even, without trying. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was exactly our, our fear. Um, and as time went on, we started to think, are there practical ways? Because actually what people wanted was not psychotherapy or counselling mm -hmm. or drugs or anything. What everybody wanted was some kind of practical support, help with getting schools going again, help mm -hmm. with getting the economy going again so that people could actually find meaningful work, could start to support their families, could start to build a society. And what really I learned from that was and that... were you expected to be there and go, speak to me about what happened? I think that's what the idea, because we were working for a centre in London. It was called at the time the Medical Foundation for Care of Victims of Torture. It's now a big organisation called Freedom from Torture. Mm -hmm. And they had set up a centre in London where pe pe refugees who had been tortured could go there for therapy and try and deal with their suffering in London. Mm -hmm. What we were finding in Kampala, and I think they had the idea that we would set up something like that and that they could go back to the funders and say, oh, we're seeing you know, all these people and they're all getting better, and mm -hmm. that was it. And like I said early on, Blind Boy, mental health is messy, but mm -hmm. by God, it was really messy in, uh, in Uganda at that time. And I believe in a lot of societies that have been through stuff like Ugandans had been through there, the idea that there is some kind of psychotherapy that's going to get you over this uh, is a real, real problematic idea. Uh, that hasn't stopped armies of counsellors going to every conflict zone on planet Earth in the last 20 years with, uh, you know, after doing a counselling course or whatever and going out to tell people how to talk to one another. And I think that's the thing that really struck me after some time in Africa was Africans talk all the time. Mm -hmm. They talk about everything and they're, they're, they, they're, it's an oral culture in Uganda. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that you could go as a Western doctor and teach these people how to talk to one another about suffering yeah. just struck me as the most arrogant idea that you, know, you, could, you could imagine. So we spent three years grappling with these ideas, with these uh, things. We tried to set up some practical things like a support group for women who'd been raped and eventually they took that over themselves and it became a kind of cultural thing rather than a psychotherapy thing. Mm -hmm. We did some training work in the School of Mental Health and, uh, but it was, for me, it was a huge learning experience um, and it really made me kind of rethink all of the stuff that I'd been taught about healing and where healing comes from. And I started to really start to understand that healing very often doesn't come just from inside, but it's about what's going on around us and what we might call the context. And that sense of what the one thing that the Ugandans did want from us uh, very clearly was to be on their side and to witness what they had been through. So everywhere we went, people wanted to tell their story about what had happened. Uh, at that time, people were, there was an area to the northwest of Kampala, the capital city, called the Luero Triangle, where it's estimated that about 500,000 people lost their lives 
in the early 1980s in what was a genocidal kind of war. It became known as the killing fields of Uganda after the Cambodian killing fields of mm -hmm. Pol Pot because literally so many people were killed that their bodies were just left mm -hmm. in the fields and ditches to, to rot as people fled from the area. Mm -hmm. And then as people came back and went to their farms and their homes, there were all these bones, mm -hmm. skeletons. So people started to gather these up and put them into piles at crossroads. So you'd be driving through the Luero Triangle at that time and you'd literally come across this kind of huge pile of human bones and skulls and, and that. And people were desperate for the world to know about what had happened there and, and what was going on for them. So there was, a, there was a value to us being there as mm -hmm. witnesses and being sympathetic witnesses to what had happened and being able to hear what had happened, not turning away from the most awful human suffering. Mm -hmm. Because that's what human beings tend to do, I think, when we hear someone's been tortured we hear someone's been raped, we go, oh no, that's too bad, I don't want to hear that. You need to go to a specialist to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So we create specialist services for people who've been raped or for people who've been tortured or whatever, and we shut down those ordinary possibilities to actually talk. But I think that's one of the positive things that we did in, in Uganda was, was just that. But as I say, I think, both Joan and I, and we've often said, is that we learnt more from that experience uh, than I think we, we did practically. But we did try not to do harm while we were there. Mm -hmm. Of course, once we left, uh, other groups moved in straight away, and now there are centres for victims of torture in all sorts of places. Um, <clears throat> are they handing out, like, Xanax and... Uh, antidepressants to victims of trauma down in, in cultures like that and not? No, I wouldn't say that and I wouldn't make that accusation, but I do think it's a small step from starting the diagnostic way of thinking. Yeah. So once you move in to an area of suffering with a diagnostic mindset, so you start to say, our job here is not to find meaning, solidarity, dignity, and pathways through creativity mm -hmm. that we've already talked about, and all those kind of social and cultural ways of moving on. If you, don't, if you start thinking medically, mm -hmm. and you start to think our job here, the priority here, is to get in and to make diagnoses and set up clinics and employ psychologists and counselors, it's a small step from that mm -hmm. to starting the pharma uh, element of mental health coming mm -hmm. in on the back of that. And I think that that's borne out by, by other situations. Because, yeah, the one thing we were talking about backstage, but within, there's also a huge consumerism and capitalist element with all of this too, uh, talking about the drugs. It's for profit. So when you have the drug companies run for profit, then you have to go, well, at what point then is that you know, for, for humans, if, when is that for the good of the community? Like I've said before on the podcast, um, I don't believe our consumerist society wants to have humans being mentally healthy, okay? I think how I position it is, when you buy a pair of fucking 
decent shoes. You're not buying shoes because you want them on your feet or because they're warm. How branding works is what they're doing, that they're selling you a better version of yourself. So a decent pair of shoes, it's like, look at the advertising campaign. It's not saying they're comfy. It's not saying they'll keep your feet right. They're saying these shoes are on a beautiful, successful person. So what you actually want is success and beauty. And if you buy these shoes, your mind thinks it'll give it to you. But because we exist in that society, I don't think consumerism can work if we have decent mental health. Because if you have a solid sense of self-esteem and a grounding in yourself and you feel confident in who you are, then you just want shoes to keep your feet warm. You're not interested in shoes that make you a better person because you're like, how can shoes make me a better person? Does that make sense? But it, it's, all, that's, it's all systematic. It's all part of a system. And I do think the... Pharmaceutical companies deliberately going into colleges and kind of getting involved in the training, so that then turns into doctors who, without even knowing it, are kind of pushing pills. I mean, is that too hot a take now? Have I gone too far with that language, or is there some semblance of truth in what I'm saying? No, there's, 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 it's, uh, this is the, one of the biggest industries on... on planet Earth, um, a good book to read if you want an insight into the pharmaceutical industry is, uh, um, what's his name, the guy who write, writes all the spy novels? Uh, uh, what's his name, the guy who writes all the spy this, novels? This, this. Who? John le Carre, John le Carre wrote a book called The Constant Gardener. Oh, yes. You might have seen the movie, actually. But, like, uh, John le Carre kind of wrote... He spent all... You know, he trained in British intelligence, um, but then started writing about espionage, about the KGB and the CIA and British intelligence and all the rest of it and what they did and didn't do and all of that. And at the end of the Cold War, he turned his attention to other areas, you know, like drugs trade and, uh, um, you know, the Russian mafia and other things. But The Constant Gardener was about the pharma, about f the pharmaceutical industry. And in none of his books did he write, in any of the other books, did he write anything in the book about the subject, if you like, you know. But at the end of The Constant Gardener, if you get it, there's a kind of postscript and basically what Le Carre says in that, he says, look, he says, lads, I've been looking at the KGB and the CIA and uh, Israeli Mossad and all of these organizations and the Russian mafia and whatever. They have nothing on pharma for mm -hmm. intrigue, for exploitation, for being, from being willing to actually make calculations around numbers of people who will die. Mm -hmm. You know, if they do one thing and how much money they can pay out to get over that. It's one of the most corrupt industries on planet Earth. Probably after uh, ornaments, it probably is. It's, it's certainly way up there. And uh, I, I've seen it in, in, in medicine, how in the course of my career, they've shaped my territory of psychiatry and mental health to their needs. Mm -hmm. There's a case example from Japan, right? Basically, through the 1980s, the sales of antidepressants in Western countries were going up and up and up and up. So the profits for pharma were going up and up and up and up, and they were really happy with this. 
There was one country, one industrialized, rich country, where the profits, where the, where the prescriptions for antidepressants weren't going up at all, and that was Japan. And Japan, Japanese people have a very different way, culturally, of talking about sadness and states of despair and whatnot. Um, and I, I can remember one time listening after the earthquake, the big Kobe earthquake in, in, in Japan, and uh, listening to a Western psychologist complaining about the Japanese, that they didn't know how to talk properly about their, their distress. It was the most arrogant kind of view I've ever seen. But basically, pharma kind of said, we've got to do something about this. So they literally got together a bunch of anthropologists and others from around the world to say, how can, what messages can we start to put into Japanese culture that will shift them to start using the word depression? Holy fuck. Yeah, in their, in, in their talk about states of sadness. Because if we can get them to start using our words, like depression and things like that, instead of more indigenous Japanese words or whatever, we'll have them shifted over and we can then start selling our products to them. And they literally sat down and planned that. And there's books written about it. There's a, there's a, a Canadian psychiatrist, Lawrence Kermayer, who's an anthropologist and psychiatrist, who's professor of transcribe, and he, he was invited and he, he, he wrote, wrote an article about this, and he says, I knew there was something fishy about this meeting I was going to in Japan, because it was first-class travel. The hotels I was staying in were way beyond anything I'd been in before. Yeah. These were serious about, you know, there was serious money mm -hmm. behind this project. But, it, you know, they've, they've literally manipulated uh, doctors, Patient groups, they fund a lot of patient groups, actually, both in America and in Europe. Uh, they do all sorts. Anything that you can think of that's going to make them money, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll do it. Um, and w without caring about human beings. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a Danish physician, Peter Gotsky, uh, who is one of the people behind, you've probably heard the expression evidence-based medicine. Yeah. Well, Peter was one of the physicians who set up what was called the Cochrane Collaboration, which was a, a bunch of, of doctors around the world who just said, look, let's get all the information we can about treatments together so that we can offer people absolutely scientific kind of uh, guidance on on what treatments work, what don't work, basically. So the Cochrane collaboration was the backbone of what we call, now call evidence-based medicine, and he was one of the leaders of the Nordic uh, Cochrane collaboration. And in more recent years, he turned his attention to, to mental health, and he just, he's written a book about this. He talks about, he uses a quote from someone, a, kind of a whistleblower within pharma, uh, talking about, you know, these guys have organized crime, the mob, have nothing on these guys in terms mm -hmm. of numbers of deaths they've caused, how much corruption of government they've brought about. They're, you know, it's quite a remarkable story. And I think, you know, it's not that we don't use drugs. We have to. They're there and we, we will use them. But we have to be critical in our thinking behind what we're doing with things like medicines. Because if we're not careful those kind of influences, which are corrupt influences, can influence what we're doing. 
mm -hmm. and can actually cause more suffering than we, we bring help to people, I think. So I, I think it's important, you know, that we don't say that drugs are all bad or whatever, that's nonsense. But the massive expansion of, not just in psychiatry, but in medicine in general, of products, uh, we do have to be more critical, I think, as a culture, about where all that's coming from, you know. Um, one thing I'm thinking the whole time we're talking about that, is there a part of you that's concerned that you end up looking like a conspiracy theorist or you end up looking wacky? Do you know what I mean? Like, everything you're saying is, is on the ball, but the thing is, you, you, here's the thing, which it's like, there's the anti-vaxxer movement as well, and they're against Big Pharma, and the thing is, is that it's hard to draw these lines. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's a danger of yeah. you, just by the way you're speaking, looking like a, a crackpot, and what's that like? You know what I'm saying, I'm not... I, I, I do, and, and it's, uh, it's not comfortable, but, but it's, things are changing, and the, there's a guy now, a, a Lithuanian psychiatrist by the name of Danius Puras, who's been appointed the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health. Um, and he's, Danius has brought out two really punching documents in the last few years where he names this stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't pull his punches about mm -hmm. mental health and the way the, 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 what we would, might call the biomedical paradigm or the biomedical model has dominated. Mm -hmm. And he's basically saying, and this is from the UN, United Nations, basically saying this stuff is bullshit mm -hmm. and we really have to get away from it and we have to start looking at the social determinants of health seriously in a way that's been marginalized up to now. Mm -hmm. I think other organizations, I'm part of a group called the Critical Psychiatry Network. We first started meeting in Bradford back 20 years ago when, when uh, I was living and working there. We, we were five people in a room uh, to start with. Now the Critical Psychiatry Network, we've got about 240 psychiatrists around the world who are part of this, who are writing publishing books, challenging, and I think we're taken a lot more seriously now than we were. Um, do, you, do you experience um, hostility? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, uh, Would there be psychiatrists or doctors who are essentially in the pockets of pharma and they're stooges, essentially? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, yes. that's how it works, yes. that's how yes. it works. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't any Corruption, Pe yeah. people like yeah. being corrupt. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking about lots of money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the pharma use what are called opinion leaders. There's a little, I mean, I'm not just making this stuff up. This, mm -hmm. You know, this is just that they talk about this themselves. That uh, if you can get kind of a professor of an area on your side and you pay them to do talks and you pay them... Uh, sometimes they even have shares in the company, for God's mm -hmm. sake. You know, it's as blatant as that. Um, that you can get these people and you take them around and they'll give talks on a subject area, but they'll mention your drug. Mm -hmm. They won't be talking about your drug directly, but they'll be talking about the area and they're a professor and they'll, it'll seem as though they're neutral in what the, the evidence that they're giving you, but they will drop in 
messages that are quite sympathetic towards your your, um, your product, basically. And even doing that online, that's now illegal. Like that, that's called native advertising now online. It's where you write an article and you think the article is about something, but all of a sudden the person's mentioning cornflakes a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But Absolutely. you can. Yeah, yeah. If, if you do that online, yeah, yeah. you have to say it's sponsored. You yeah. have to do it or else it violates. Yeah. So why are doctors and professors able to be in the pocket of Big Pharma and go you know, dropping these drugs in throughout it's, it? How is that allowed? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's changing because people like myself and others are campaigning and You're working with the World Health Organization now? Hmm? You're working with the World Health I'm Organization working with, Yeah, I'm doing a project with the World Health Organization at the moment. Um, and again, WHO, from my way of looking at things, have been part of the problem okay. uh, until very recently. And they're now shifting big time into looking at a social model of what we call a social model of disability, basically, and using that in mental health and using that alongside a human rights approach to mental health. And really, you know, what I'm working on at the moment is a, a service guideline document for them. We're, we're mm-hmm. researching that. We're researching services around the world that are working with a really human rights uh, and social model of mental health. And that's going to be WHO policy and WHO way of looking at things, mm-hmm. and that's what they're going to promote in terms of mental health services, and directly naming what the problem is. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be involved otherwise, and they wouldn't have approached, they know who I am, and the kind of stuff I, I've been writing about for 20 years. So it does indicate a shift mm-hmm. in, in that territory. And I think the other thing that's happened, of course, is that the pharma are starting to disinvest Mm-hmm. in mental health, because basically there are no new products coming down the tube. So what they're doing at the moment is they're, they're shifting their ground from Western countries to the developing world and to Asian countries. Cigarette companies did the same thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you can imagine China, what, about a quarter of the world's population? Just think of all the people in China who in the space of the last 10 or 15 years have been moved from their villages into high-rise cities Mm -hmm. doing mundane factory jobs of one sort or another. Just think of all the misery and dislocation and sadness and anxiety that goes with that. Well, by God, if you can convince all of those people, or even 10% of them, that they're depressed and that a drug is going to be the answer to that, that's a goldmine. Yeah. And that's how pharma thinks. It doesn't actually give a shit about the people in, you know, and their problems and whether their drugs will make them better or not because they don't most of the time. That's the science of it. And they come with a lot of side effects. But they're money spinners. And, and if you can do that in China and you can do that in India, well, then you've got a third of the world's population. Mm-hmm. And that's, how they're, that's what they're doing at the moment. But there are no new products coming. So they're actually starting to disinvest from mental health research. That, to me, is a relief. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a sense of actually that whole biological paradigm that has been dominant for so long is actually going to start fading away. And then, you know, God knows what's going to come, but there is an opportunity for those of us who articulate a social approach or a cultural approach or a creativity approach that there's some space in the, for us to articulate that mm-hmm. and to have a hearing. And I think that's starting to, to happen, actually. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that 
uh, I won't say it doesn't give me hope. The one thing that scares me is, like, medicine is so much cheaper than, like, okay, one of the biggest issues in Ireland when it comes to access to mental health services, right? Um, I was very lucky. I, I was in college. So if you're in college, one of the best bits in college is you've access to a fucking college counsellor. So I was able to go, brilliant, I've got a counsellor every week to talk me through my shit. If I wasn't in college, I'd be paying them 70, 80 quid, 90 quid. I wouldn't have had that money. Most people I know in Limerick who've got depression and anxiety, they, they can't fucking afford 60 quid a week to go to CBT therapy or whatever. They go to the public services and big long waiting list or whatever, but under like neoliberalism and the Irish government, if we, so we put things into the hands of the state. Most people I know need to go to public services in order to get mental health. The public service is being run in a kind of a business model. That now means that for the crunching of numbers, doesn't the public service sector then go, well, this counselling here, like that's mad, mad expensive, but this box of pills is not that expensive at all. Where does that come into it? Because that's kind of scary. That means that the government, uh, the government would have to triple or quadruple its budget to give the amount of talk therapy that people actually... Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. And, and I think uh, that there is a calculation in that, but I think we also have to be a bit more creative. That, that I don't think it's all just about psychotherapy replacing yeah. kind of drugs or whatever. I think we need to be thinking... Actually, that's where I'm being quite narrow on this, because you're talking creative therapy and uh, the social approach. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Because I haven't a clue about that. Okay, that can be anything, basically. I mean, down the road here in Skibbereen, there's 49 North Street, and there's uh, Kevin O'Shanahan, who runs that, uh, working for the HSE, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's a centre for creati creativity. It's not about creative therapy as such, yeah. but it's a, it's a place where lots of different creative kind of things happen, and it's open to people with any kind of mental health problem to be connected with that, and I know that part of the program for the Skibbereen Arts Festival is actually an open door mm -hmm. with that, and I really encourage people to go and explore that and find out what's happening there. Because the thing is, Blind Boy, what I would say is that people, when they get stuck with a mental health issue, and that, that's what it can really feel like, you're stuck and you just don't know where to go with it. That there's, my experience is that people find ways of moving on from that being stuck along a range of different pathways. And it's not just about drugs fixing. That might work for one person and mm -hmm. might be really helpful and get them through a period and allow them to move on. Therapy might be very great for, for, for another person. Some people can't stand therapy. They mm -hmm. can't stand talking about stuff. So something that involves art mm -hmm. might be very important. Gardening might be the thing that works for somebody else. Walking. Mm -hmm. And for some people, getting out into the countryside, mm -hmm. into nature, can be hugely important. Dare I say it, religion can be very mm -hmm. important for people in terms of finding a way forward out mm -hmm. of despair and finding hope. Uh, poetry, the, the, the range of possibilities for us as human beings to move on from being stuck emotionally or cognitively or whatever are huge. And I think that's the kind of thing we have to start talking about and thinking about. How do we then, and, and I saw my job when I worked as a psychiatrist, as a clinical director, 
was to try and create a service that was open. It's not that we provided all of those things, but it was that we knew where someone could access those mm-hmm. things. So if we weren't doing it, we knew an organization that was. Mm-hmm. So I kind of saw my job as making those links and spending time nurturing those relationships and knowing where possibilities were for people to find things. And ultimately as well, are you talking about uh, providing people with a sense of meaning that's unique to them, for the person to find unique meaning? Absolutely, absolutely. What we call what's known as the recovery approach in mental health, which is something that's come out of uh, what we might call the service user movement, This is one of the most exciting things that has happened in the field of mental health in the last time of my lifetime, basically, is that people who use mental health services around the world have started to come together in organizations, all sorts of different organizations, and have started to talk about what's going on for them, have started to criticize what's been done to them, have started to imagine new ways of doing mental health work, and it's multivarious. That movement is very, very... There's a, uh, an organization called Mad Pride, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, people set up in Cork some years ago. Mad Pride exists in the States as well. But now there's a whole program called Mad Studies in Canada, where academics who have had mental health problems themselves are starting to write about that, research it, and articulated in a way that's quite different to the way psychiatry comes at it and thinks about it. So there's a, there's a whole movement of people around the world who are starting to talk about mental health from the inside mm-hmm. in a very different way and come up with very different solutions to what medicine has come up with. And I see that as the future, basically. I see that as something that's uh, wonderful, But out of that came the notion of the recovery approach. And that came from people like Judy Chamberlain, who is a very famous service user and campaigner in America. And she basically was someone who was told, you've got a diagnosis of schizophrenia. You just better, like, limit your horizons. Best thing you can do now, Judy, is to keep taking your drugs, not think about having kids, not thinking about having a career, just limit your horizons and stay stable and we'll maintain you in that position as a stabilized schizophrenic. Well, she said, fuck that. I'm, I'm not going to put up with that. Mm-hmm. And, and she talked about recovering her own identity and her own self by getting out of the system and wrote a book about it and started a campaign with other people about that. And the recovery movement, as I've learned it, is from service users. And that's a movement that says mental health isn't about the technical stuff like diagnosis and treatments and models and professionals going away and dreaming up new things to do to us and whatever. Recovery is about actually the non-technical aspects of life, of mental health and problems. It's about relationships, it's about meanings, it's about values, it's about things like dignity, it's about empowerment. It's about feeling I've got my life back again rather than I'm a patient and I just have to go down to the clinic every mm-hmm. couple of weeks and get someone to administer to me. It's actually I'm back in control. Now, that doesn't mean that people stop taking drugs or don't go for therapy, but they do it from a sense of 
I'm actually the captain of my ship and I'll tell you mm-hmm. what's going to help me and what's not going to help me, not the other way around, so mm-hmm. to speak. So that recovery approach now is, is catching on. Unfortunately, one of the things that's happened is that professionals have started to colonize it. Okay. And you've getting recovery researchers now coming from a professional point of mm-hmm. view. So there's actually now a resistance to that, again, from within the survivor service user movement. So there's an organization in the UK called Recovery in the Bin. <laughs> who are saying, look, you know, you, you've, you've actually spoiled and ruined something that came from us by turning it into, so people going around with recovery questionnaires and instruments and all sorts of stuff, that's not where this comes from. It comes from empowerment, and that's something very different. So there's a, you know, there's a whole kind of movement of people um, that's, that's moving in a very different direction to where psychiatry has been. And, and my point of view, when I address my own profession, is that if we don't start to understand that and listen to it, and start to develop the skills to hear what people are telling us, we're going to get left behind, and we're going to be part of the problem mm-hmm. rather than part of the solution. Um, I had a bunch of questions off the internet. I didn't get to ask all of them because we had... And do you know what? Anytime I don't have to ask the questions, it means it's a good podcast because it's a nice flowing conversation. But one of them... Out of all the qualities specific to the Irish people... Which ones are most damaging to our psyche? You know more about that than I do. You, you, but, you've... <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that I found interesting when you were talking earlier about uh, J- uh, Japan, because of the, the way the Japanese people were speaking. I have heard post-colonial arguments that the way we speak about sadness in Asquelga mm. compared to English, that if, if to have depression in Irish is... It's not I am depressed or I have depression. It's I have a sadness on me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I've heard the argument that we might be better. Well, we all know we'd be better off if the Brits didn't come over. We're, we're aware of that now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, you know all about that, don't you, Skibberine? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> little thing, like one thing I do want, what, what, would wonder about is... Now, I don't want to get into the notion of... Have you, you've heard of epigenetic trauma. Is, is yeah. that a big load of bullshit? Or? No, I think there's something to it, but I wouldn't want to say that's the answer to, to everything. You know? like, is, epigenetic trauma is that trauma can genetically be passed on through genes. Is that correct? Well, it's the idea... Epigenetics is the idea that um, what's passed on from one generation to the other in our genes does get modified by environmental factors okay. along the way. It's not just pure what's in your genes gets passed on and that expresses itself, that actually things that happen to the person, can that can actually influence the way that's expressed. That's how I understand um, it. Because I would, <clears throat> like I said before, no where the fuck it was, but I, like, I, I can literally trace, I can kind of trace my anxiety back to the famine. Mm-hmm. It, it, in, I know it sounds mad, but like... I learned uh, to react anxiously and with fear and to worry. That's a learned behavior that I learned from my dad, who was born in the 30s. And he learned that behavior from his ma. And she grew up in the famine. And she had crippling, crippling anxiety because she lived through the trauma of the fucking famine. 
and he learned anxiety from that. So I can trace my anxiety to my grandmother. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I, I don't think it's too yeah. far of a leap. No, I, 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 maybe it's because I'm in the midst of Irish culture and growing up in it that I can't really see it as clearly as that or something, but I just, I worked in New Zealand. It's a bit of a stretch now, I'll admit it's a bit of a stretch. But going straight into the psychiatrist, why have you got anxiety? Well, I think it might be because of the famine. <clears throat> have a sandwich. <laughs> 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 That would be even cheaper than antidepressants. Um, <laughs> have a sandwich and a can of Coke. Uh, Does anyone uh, look at um, the massive trauma of something like the famine, like half our population gone, and where does that trauma go? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to say that in New Zealand, the Maori people um, are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and they uh, basically, for about five or 600 years, lived... Uh, on the islands of New Zealand up to the late 18th, 19th century when Europeans came. And um, they were never defeated as such, actually, by, by the colonial forces. There was a treaty, the famous Treaty mm -hmm. of Waitangi, which basically the British signed. It was a bit like the Treaty of Limerick, mm -hmm. you know, that they kind of said, look, we'll get these stupid kind of natives to sign this and then we'll take their land yeah. from them. And that's what they... They did, basically. But the Treaty of Waitangi still stood there. And very interestingly in New Zealand, it's come right back into jurisprudence and the law because Maori scholars and lawyers and politicians have started to say, hang on a second here, you know, you signed this treaty with us about cultural rights and mm -hmm. respect and all of these things. And you've not done any of this. Now we want to... We actually mm -hmm. want this. So there's a whole... It's a very interesting um, happening in, in New Zealand at the moment. But one of the things that, that happened through colonialism very directly was there was... And you can almost see it over the course of 100 years. They destroyed Maori language. They, they, Maori had a whole system of healers called Tahunga. And there was a, literally a Tohunga Suppression Act came in in the 1920s where they banned um, Maori healing practices. Uh, Maori have a very family-orientated way of, of their organizing anything, basically. It's all about family. And so things like private property and, you know, where one nuclear family would... That was completely unknown mm -hmm. and, and whatever. Their culture was completely destroyed. Their way of life was completely destroyed. And they're really still suffering. And even though there's been a, a renaissance in their culture and their dance and the haka and things like mm -hmm. that that we know and see, there's, when you go there, like I was seeing patients, mm -hmm. and you, you could tell that there was a sense of insecurity a struggle with inferiority, mm -hmm. a struggle with knowing who we are and mm -hmm. where we stand in the world that was seeped in to family life, into culture, into towns, into villages. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. and into individuals uh, as well. And it, it maps out over all sorts of areas of Maori life. The very high drug addiction mm-hmm. levels, uh, very highly criminalized in the criminal justice system, so that even though Maori make up only 15% of the population, over 50% of all the female prisoners mm-hmm. in the whole of New Zealand are Maori. Mm-hmm. So they're way exaggerated in all the problematic. They die about 15 years earlier than the non-Maori section of the population. And I think that's a direct result of the impact of colonialism on their way of life Mm -hmm. and the destruction that it had. And you can map that across the world in other indigenous communities, particularly the Aboriginal people in, in Australia, who have very high rates of mental illness, of drug problems, of alcohol problems, of all sorts of difficulties. You can see it in Native American communities mm-hmm. as, as well. And all of those things can be mapped directly back to cultural destruction mm-hmm. and confidence, and the destruction of the confidence, language, way of life, sense of who they are in the world, sense of being... Uh, someone who has a, a place, as I say, a place in the world and the dignity that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what colonialism can do to, to communities. And maybe we're an example of that. Um, and as one of the first post-colonial societies, really, yeah. you know, we're on 100 years now. And yeah. We've made some progress, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think some of that confidence is starting to come back a hundred mm-hmm. years after getting our own country back. We're now actually, we've got the church off our back mm-hmm. and we've got all of that kind of stuff that came in the immediate impact of uh, the colonial era. So maybe, you know, there are linkages, sociological, anthropological or whatever. Um, and maybe we're just, you know what I mean? What I'm trying to say is like, I could see it very directly in mm-hmm. New Zealand amongst Maori, um, mm-hmm. but given that hundred year kind of time frame and whatever, where, where, maybe it's more difficult to see it yeah. directly here, if that yeah. makes sense. No, I get you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put the microphone to the audience if you have any questions. Can you put the, the house lights up, but in a gentle way that it doesn't shock anyone? There we go now. Um, does anybody have a, a question? The question can be about anything. It can be a question about dogs. Um, I just wanted to ask... I, I can hear someone, but I can't see them, so I'm just going to... I just I, wanted to ask the psychiatrist, medical doctor, in the context of his experience in Uganda, first of all, did he come across witchcraft in his travels? And secondly, if he did, did he find that Witchcraft was an impediment towards his reaching the people that he wanted to reach. That was a great question. 
wasn't expecting. <laughs> Question about witchcraft. I, I, yeah, I mean, the term, if I might say so, and I don't want to sound condescending or anything, but the term witchcraft is a very Western and almost prerogative, you know, derogatory term. The spirituality in, in Africa, in fact, in most parts of, of the world, most cultures, people live much closer to the spirit world than, than we do in the Western world. Our religions have become very kind of packaged and very, I suppose, um, uh, book-orientated, uh, whereas uh, in Africa, spirituality is alive. Uh, spirits are everywhere. Um, ancestral spirits, spirits of forests, spirits of lakes, uh, are everywhere and come into people's lives and go out of people's lives. Um, and yes, of course, I, I, uh, you can't live in Africa for any length of time without being... And I actually worked with um, what I would call a traditional healer, uh, someone I got to know in what I talked about earlier in the Luero Triangle. Uh, she was a woman who had her healing center quite near to a village that we used to go and, and visit quite a lot and I got to know her over a long period of time and went to sit in with her during some of her uh, healing sessions and she was a shamanic healer so she would go into a trance state and the spirits of the tribe, the Baganda, would come into her and pronounce on what the problem with the family or with the individual was and would also pronounce on what the kind of ritual answer to that was. And it struck me at that time, because these were the, the Baganda were the main tribal group in the south of, of Uganda, and they were the ones who had really suffered during that genocide I talked about, and their, their culture and, and everything, their roads, everything was destroyed. And I felt that what she was doing in some ways, because she was she was bringing back the ancestral spirits. She was embodying them, bringing them forth into daily life. She was doing two things. She was offering remedies, if you like, for skin infections or whatever. Whether they worked or not, I don't know. But she was also bringing back a sense of the tribal identity to the Baganda, who had suffered so much at that time. And I think a lot of healing is a lot on a number of levels. You know, it's on the, on the surface, but there's also deeper issues going on, assumptions and values, things being worked out. And I think uh, traditional healing in Africa, as in other parts of the world, is a lot more complicated than just witchcraft, if, if I might say that. And I think sometimes we, we're, you know... It, it's, there are layers to it and there are charlatans of course who will exploit people and take money off people there are people who will abuse people but I would say the same thing happens in medicine over here you know? yeah. so I don't think we're in any position to judge another healing system uh, without sorting out our own first so I, I've, I developed a lot of respect for traditional healers and continue to do that and I believe that traditional healing practices around the world actually have a lot to play, a large role to play in mental health issues. Um, but that's a whole other debate. Um, I'd say one more question. A bit of gender balance, if we could. 
Should your regular GP be able to prescribe antidepressants, Prozacs and the like, if uh, they're not so good for people? Um, I, I don't think Without the answer is... Without your training? Sorry? Without your training? Well, psychiatrists with more training than I have um, write the guidelines usually for GPs and they, you know, in the guidelines usually antidepressants are up there very quickly in terms of a solution. Um, I think a lot of GPs would say that, that they prescribe because they have so little time with people and I think that's part of the problem is that the whole structure, if you like, of a medicalized response to states of distress, it, 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 the whole system that we have, if you like, um, uh, very quickly starts to put people into boxes and then you get drugs attached to those boxes and people yeah. come out the door with a prescription. I think most people, mo I, and I've, I've, I've talked, I gave a talk some years back to the Irish College of GPs, pretty much along the lines that I'm talking to you today, and I got one of the most warmest receptions from a group of medics ever uh, that I've got um, because they understood what I was talking about. They understood the limitations of psychopharmacology. They understood the need for a range of different responses. They understood uh, all about the social determinants of mental health and some of those things because they're dealing with people in their ordinary lives. So I, I, I don't think you can kind of start to point the finger at GPs. Yeah. I think the whole system needs rethinking and we need to start getting our imagination out of the idea that this is just about doctors and clinics and things like that. And we need to start being more imaginative in how we as a community start to respond to states of distress, states of madness. And we have to start thinking about more inclusive kind of ways of running our organizations, our workplaces, our educational establishments, uh, so that we don't constantly cause problems for people, say, in their studies. Lots of people have anxiety, stay in an episode of depression. That should not jeopardize your degree course. Mm -hmm. That should not be, you know, you sh we, 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 start, we have to start thinking about how we set up uh, schools, uh, universities, colleges, workplaces, uh, in ways that actually allow us to become more comfortable with mental health issues. And so it's not, oh, you have to go to your doctor and get a diagnosis and get, you know, as though that becomes our only, that's the only solution we have as a society. And then GPs are getting hundreds of people coming yeah. through the door. They've got 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's not fair on either side yeah. in that equation. Um, one thing we didn't touch on, and I wouldn't mind, is you mentioned backstage, like, uh, you know, a lot of the drugs that people have been taking, we now know that some of them have very bad side effects. Can you speak about some of that? Just for people to understand, you know, why are you out here saying um, we might need to look at something that... The, the, do you know what I mean? Why are some of these drugs bad? Yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware, I'm speaking to an audience uh, that, you know, one in five people here will be taking an antidepressant or some drug like that. Um, and I'm not giving a message that, you know, 
you need to stop these drugs or anything like it. Uh, as I say, I'm a doctor, I'm a prescriber, I prescribe these drugs for people. But I would do so after having uh, a clear, transparent discussion about the benefits and the limitations and the problematics of these drugs. All drugs have. If I take drugs for arthritis, if I take drugs for high blood pressure, there's going to be problems associated yeah. with those drugs. So, but I think any patient is due that level of transparency about the, what, what those drugs can do, what they can't do, and what the side effects and the downside of them are. And so we're learning, for example, about antidepressants, that they were always, we were always told that these are very straightforward, particularly what we call the SSRI drugs. These are the second generation antidepressants that are mostly prescribed, like Prozac and other drugs like that, that basically people don't have a problem coming off them. In other words, they were always kind of marketed strongly as they didn't have addictive potential, mm -hmm. like benzodiazepines, like Valium and drugs like that, which in the 1960s were highly prescribed, but then got a real bad press because it became clear that people got hooked on these yeah. after they took them and couldn't get off them. Well, the evidence around antidepressants is becoming uh, a lot clearer now that lots of people, not everyone, not everyone, and maybe not even a majority of people, but quite a large number of people on antidepressants do have real difficulties coming off them, mm -hmm. more so than what the pharmaceutical companies, even though they had this evidence, it's only coming out now because a number of people are campaigning and banging on the door and saying, Let's, we want to see the evidence about this. And people have done studies. Um, so uh, there are lots of benefits from, from these drugs, but there's also a lot of downsides. And, and uh, I think what I, what I think anyone deserves who is going to be prescribed medication or someone who is taking medication is to know all of the facts about that rather than just a very limited um, account of it and a glowing account of it usually is what, what, uh, what, what, what we're given. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a book I would recommend from anyone who wants to get into this seriously is a book called The Myth of the Chemical Cure. It's by a psychiatrist, uh, Joanna Moncrief, uh, someone I know and respect a lot. And Joanna works in London. She's a senior lecturer in, uh, in King's College, I think. Um, and basically what she argues is that we have to stop thinking about these drugs in a, what she calls a disease-centered way. In other words, that they're curing a disease called depression or anxiety or schizophrenia. There are not. There isn't, there isn't any evidence that antidepressants fix something that causes depression. What she says is that we should start looking at them from what she calls a drug-centered approach, that these are chemicals that we put into our bodies and they have various effects on our bodies, much like alcohol, much like cocaine, much like any other chemical that we use. And just as we wouldn't say that cocaine is an antidepressant, but we would talk about it as having certain effects, some of which might be nice and pleasant, others which could be a real pain in the ass and could be really problematic. And so if we start to think about these drugs, these, for example, SSRIs, and just look at what the drug does, 
Yeah. So some of these drugs can be quite sedating. Now that might be helpful for someone who isn't sleeping, for example, or who needs a bit of sedation. But for someone who's really struggling with low energy and yeah. not getting out of bed, then to take one of those drugs is not going to be very helpful. Some of the antidepressants are alerting. Again, you know, that might be helpful for someone who is struggling with lack of energy, etc. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, I think Joanna's way of approaching it is quite sensible, and she works this out in some detail with all of the evidence that's available to us about how these drugs work. And I think her work is, is particularly helpful when it comes to psychopharmacology. So if anyone wants kind of to look into this further, I'd, I'd recommend looking in that territory. Right, so there we go. That was uh, this week's podcast, an interview with Pat Bracken. That was an absolute pleasure to speak to Pat, to hear his breadth of knowledge, to hear the passion that he has. Um, it was a real, real pleasure, and I hope you took something from it. Uh, I'll see you next week.